Hey guys, I'm Raf. And I'm James. On today's episode, The Psychiatrist Guide to Valentine's Day. something to do with a legendary she-wolf cut that out i've never heard of anything more romantic in my life and now if someone were to go to a grave white chocolate is chocolate too very controversial opinion all right so let's talk about the history of valentine's day let's do it i'm pumped are you pumped it's coming up man it is coming up i haven't have you bought a present yet i have made a reservation at our favorite restaurant Sweet. Yeah. And so, you haven't done anything. What if I release this episode before Valentine's Day? She knows. Okay. I it invited her to the restaurant on a on my Google Calendar. Nice. So, yeah. So, Valentine's Day comes with the Roman tradition of Lupercalia. Mm-hmm. So, there was these priests called the Lupercali. Mm-hmm. And then every February 15th, they'd have this ceremony. They'd sacrifice a couple goats and a dog. Mm-hmm. Right? Then they'd cut strips of leather out of the skin of these animals. Okay. And pretty much they would have a party and they would like run around with these leather soaked in blood. And any women that came by them, they would like hit them on the head with the, the strip of leather and that would somehow make them fertile. I've never heard of anything more romantic in my life. It's awesome. I, don't, I wish we actually still did this. <laughs> anyway, and then in the fifth century, the Catholic Pope took over the tradition and replaced it with what's called St. Valentine's Day. Okay. Now, there's two contenders for who St. Valentine could have been. Mm -hmm. And actually, there's debate as to whether they're two separate people. Okay. So there's two guys named Valentine. One of them was a priest and also a physician. So I'm rooting for him. Yeah, I'm I'm voting for that guy. And then the other guy was a bishop, also named Valentine. Okay. Um, No no PhD, no MD, no master's degree, no nothing. Not that I know of, although being a bishop, I think, is a pretty big deal. Like I said, it may have been the same person. We don't really know. Okay. But in any event, both of them were martyrs. Mm-hmm. And there's two competing legends as to what they did and why they're associated with Valentine's Day. Okay. One of them is that the first guy uh, violated the emperor's orders and secretly married couples to spare the husbands from war. So Interesting. I guess apparently if the husbands were married, they wouldn't have to go off to war. Okay. So to stop the breaking up the couples and sending them into war, he would have these secret marriages. And this is the physician who was doing this. I think this was the physician. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like him even more. And then the other guy who was uh, jailed, Mm -hmm. he saved his jailer's daughter from blindness through a miracle. And then when he wrote a note to her, Mm -hmm. he signed it, your Valentine. So the combination of both of those legends are associated with the meaning that we attribute to Valentine's Day today, uniting people in love. And then also it gave birth to the tradition that we have now of having a Valentine and giving like a Valentine's Day card. I haven't saved anyone's vision yet, so I don't know if I can officially claim that I have had a Valentine to this day. So in the 1500s is when the idea of a Valentine, as in somebody who you had a crush on, Mm -hmm. appeared. By the 1700s, people were giving out cards. Interesting. And then by the 1800s, they were commercially available in the U.S., So let's talk about uh, the neurochemistry of love. All right. It helps to break down the stages of love into different stages. Okay. In the very beginning, there's a phase of love where it's really more about lust. Oh, yeah. More about like the animal attraction that attracts you to the other person. Mm -hmm. 
And so one of the hormones that's playing a key role in that phase is testosterone. Now, Raft, is that to say that women cannot experience lust? No, of course not. And that's because women, like so, men, make testosterone. Yes, women yeah. make testosterone. Exactly mm-hmm. right. And mm-hmm. actually, during this phase of infatuation, mm-hmm. during this very early phase, women's testosterone level increases. Interesting. Okay. But, but what's more interesting, I think, is that men's testosterone level actually goes down. Huh. And the thought is that by decreasing the testosterone, it allows the men to be more available for making an emotional connection. Emotional connection. So it kind of flips the testosterone levels in the different sexes. So it makes the women more aggressive and more willing to engage in kind of this animalistic attraction. Wow. And it makes the men more receptive to just having that one partner. Interesting. And staying around for a long period of time. Hmm. So first is kind of the first stage of lust or attraction. Mm -hmm. And then you move on to the honeymoon phase. Mm -hmm. And that's when people are madly in love with each other. Mm -hmm. You might almost say they're addicted to each other, which is no surprise because the main hormone at play or the main neurotransmitter at play during that time is dopamine. Mm. And dopamine, as we know, plays a lot of roles in a lot of different things, including, I see here, sexual gratification, Mm -hmm. motivation, pleasure, reward. Activity, impulsivity. Right. So so dopamine is, is the neurotransmitter that's involved in the addiction pathway. Mm-hmm. And so during this phase of what you might call love, the increases in dopamine lead to what you could call approach and consuming behavior. Mm-hmm. So you basically become addicted to the other person mm. because when you're with them, it increases your dopamine just like a drug would, hmm. right? Just like cocaine would, for example. And so it starts to hijack your reward pathway and you become addicted to this person. And that's associated with those positive feelings, those euphoric feelings that you get. Mm. This can last a varying period of time depending on a lot of different things. But you can think of it as maybe like the first year and a half of the relationship. Interesting. That's like a ballpark kind of figure. Mm. What's interesting about this to me is that when Alfred Kinsey put out his reports in 1958, Mm -hmm. he studied, I think, what he would call outcroppings of the dopamine involvement in this whole in love. And Explain. so certain things, certain behaviors that wouldn't that aren't explainable otherwise, like biting, you mm. could explain. Interesting. If you're talking about, you know, dopaminergic, you're literally talking about consuming behavior, you're talking right. about impulsivity. Right. I think that that aspect of love can be explained in this way. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense actually. There's uh, another hormone called phenylethylamine, which some people call the love hormone. But really what it does is it stimulates dopamine release. So it's part of this pathway. And now if someone were to go to a rave Mm -hmm. and take a certain substance and then feel like they are just connected with everyone in the room. MDMA, also known as Molly or ecstasy, it's an amphetamine pretty much. And it works in the same way that we're talking about. It stimulates that dopamine pathway. They're really replicating the feeling that you get when you're falling in love with somebody for the first time. Talking about substances. Mm -hmm. If I don't come home on Valentine's Day, with a giant box of Godiva chocolates. Godiva is not a sponsor of this podcast. My fiance will take an ice pick and murder me. So why is that? That is because chocolate contains, among other things, a high level of phenylethylamine. Mm. And so she's addicted to chocolate. Oh, hell yeah. She'll admit that. So we've talked about kind of the very initial stages of love, Mm -hmm. of romantic love. So first the lust phase, Mm -hmm. the attraction. And then the honeymoon phase where you're just madly in love with each other Mm -hmm. for maybe the first year and a half or so. But what some people consider really true love is the phase that comes after Mm -hmm. where you have an emotional closeness to the person that persists through a lifetime. And one of the hormones involved in that process is oxytocin. I know about oxytocin because I know 
that when I pet my dog, both I and he are releasing oxytocin. That's it's exactly the, it's right. the, the bonding. The exactly. Bonding hormone. It's the bonding hormone. That's yeah. exactly right. So they've done studies that show, for example, that when couples are separated from each other for long periods of time, their oxytocin levels drop hmm. and kind of explains that longing you know, that mm. emotional pain that they have, that that feeling separated from the person. And mm. then when they come back together, come into physical contact again, the oxytocin levels increase. Another hormone that we talked about on the last podcast is endorphins. Mm-hmm. And like we said earlier, endorphins, again, are endogenous morphine. Morphine gives you feelings of decreased pain, decreased anxiety, euphoria. So that's another hormone that plays a role in keeping the love relationship strong. Mm. Because when you're physically close to the person you're in love with, you release endorphins. Mm. And it makes you feel more calm, more relaxed, happier. Like you can take on the world with your partner. Exactly. I mean, there's other hormones involved and other neurotransmitters involved. Serotonin is involved, for example. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think these are the most descriptive and kind of give you the best idea. Okay. When people say that there's chemistry between two people, mm-hmm. I mean, they mean it literally. Yeah. You know, there's neurochemistry between them. Yeah. I think there's another uh, important kind of love that we should acknowledge mm-hmm. on Valentine's Day. Okay. And that's motherly love. Okay. I'll never know. No, you won't. <laughs> you don't have, I thought you had a mother. <laughs> I will never be a mother. Oh, okay. oh, well, I could be. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. People commonly believe that there's something special between a mother and her child. Yeah. And there's actually some research to support that. Some really interesting research it came mm. out a couple years ago in 2016. There was a study. The lead author was Hogzema. Okay. And it came out in Nature Neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And the study was called Pregnancy Leads to Long-Lasting Changes in Human Brain Structure. Mm. So I read this a few years ago when it first came out. But now it's behind the paywall. So... If anybody mm. wants to read about the article, I would recommend uh, a review of it on Ars Technica, okay. written, written by a correspondent named Rohina Saxena, and she does a great job of summarizing the article. So basically what they did in this study, this was a prospective study where they looked at women before and after pregnancy, and they did MRI scans of their brain before and after the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And as a control group, they compared it to women who were who never had a child. Okay. And then what they found is that there were significant changes in the the brain scans of the women who became pregnant. And Mm. those changes persisted for at least two years. Wow. They were so similar, the changes in those women, that they were able to identify just looking at the scans which women had become pregnant. Very interesting. Yeah. There was a reduction in gray matter in different parts of the brain. Mm. And in particular, they were in parts of the brain that are involved in social behavior. Hmm. So there is a phenomena in neurobiology called uh, pruning. And what that is, is basically at certain periods of your life, like in adolescence, for example, or even in early development, you'll get rid of neurons that you no longer need to focus your your neural structure, your energy on things that you're going to have to do. So you're giving up the potential to learn and master certain things so that you can really learn and master something specific. In theory. And the idea is that it prepared them to respond to their child's emotional needs. Interesting. In the women who never had a baby, those changes didn't occur in their brain. Hmm. And also, another control that they did is they did the husbands or the, the fathers. I was just about scans. to ask. Yeah, because I felt like I could see this happening in me with yeah. my daughter. Hell, yeah. But no, it didn't. those changes did not occur in the men. Wow, interesting. Yeah. So it's specific to the women who were pregnant. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. So my take on it, actually, is that in a way, the child actually lives in the mother's brain. 
Hmm. Simply by the act of becoming pregnant and carrying the child, the child has changed the neuroanatomy of the mother. She's literally mm. changed the mother's brain structure. Yeah. yeah. So in a sense, there's a, there's a, it's kind of like when you say someone holds a special place in your heart. Yeah. When a woman has a child, that child holds a, literally holds a place in their brain. Mm-hmm. You know, they're literally rewiring exactly. themselves to care for this child exactly. for at least two years. And then after yeah, that, who knows? Exactly. <laughs> it, per- it persists for at least two years. After. Yeah. I'm curious to see what this would do to women who suffer the loss of a child during pregnancy. Mm. Because presumably this pruning process is going on while they're pregnant. Yeah. And then when the child doesn't come, I wonder how that affects them afterwards. I know it can be very painful. And I wonder if the extent of this pruning can contribute or is in any way correlated with risk of baby blues, postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis. That's an excellent point. Yeah, Yeah. I wonder. So you asked about chocolate. And I, uh, you know, I'm worried. I'm really worried because let's say I have a busy day at the office. Mm -hmm. I don't make it to the chocolate store. I come home. I am, I I do fear for my life. I have 911 on speed dial. That's what Amazon is for. Let's talk a little bit about chocolate. Sure. You, you can't really have Valentine's Day without chocolate. That's very true. So you know where chocolate comes from? Where in the world? Godiva is some European something, so that's what I would guess. No. Okay. Chocolate comes from Mexico. Oh. Well, from the Native Americans in the area of Mexico. Okay. I do remember that when the conquistadors came, mm-hmm. part of the thing they would obviously trade for gold mm-hmm. initially before they decided to just wipe out all the indigenous civilizations right, but i another, also remember it's another story i would also remember that they would trade for hot chocolate exactly yeah so we have evidence that chocolate was used mostly as a drink although they use it in other forms mm-hmm. by the native americans in the area of mexico uh since at least 1900 bc mm. like you were alluding to columbus first brought the chocolate back to spain in the 16th century and of course the spaniards added sugar and honey to make it sweet because in the Native Americans, they, it was very bitter, and they would add, like, pepper, for example. Interesting. They would add pepper? Yeah, they had, like, spices. It was, like, spice chocolate. Oh, man. And some of the tribes would use would drink the chocolate hot, and some would drink it mm. cold. And there were different ways they would prepare it. They would actually even ferment it and make an alcoholic beverage out of it. Wow. So, anyway, once Columbus brought it to Spain, they started sweetening it up to fit the, the royal uh, taste. Gotcha. And then from there, it just exploded throughout Europe mm. and became popular in the 16th and 17th century throughout Europe. So there's different kinds of chocolate. Chocolate comes from the cocoa bean. There's unsweetened or baker's chocolate. There's dark chocolate. There's milk chocolate. And there's white chocolate. Now, I have eaten because I'm an idiot. Baker's chocolate? I've eaten baker's chocolate. I was dared to do so. How did it taste? By a, by a Texan chef. And it tasted horrible yeah absolutely horrible so that's pretty much what the the native americans the aztecs and the mayas were were consuming that Mm. with like some pepper in it wow yeah just very uh very strong right and it didn't even taste like chocolate necessarily it had the texture of chocolate Mm -hmm. but it just tasted like what i imagine you know eating a raw coffee bean would taste yeah exactly (laughs) so baker's chocolate is literally the ground cocoa bean okay it's about 50 percent solids and 50 percent fats gotcha but if you grind it up into a powder then you get baker's chocolate the next step would be dark chocolate Mm -hmm. where you basically take that ground cocoa bean Mm -hmm. and you add a little bit of sugar and maybe a little bit of fat Mm -hmm. but not too much okay and then milk chocolate essentially you take dark chocolate and you add more sugar Mm -hmm. and milk Mm-hmm. And then that's the most common chocolate that people eat nowadays. Yes. And then there's white chocolate. 
which some people don't consider chocolate at all. That's what I hear all the time. Right. It's not actually chocolate. Is that true? I I disagree vehemently with that, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't so, know you had such strong opinions on chocolate. Don't, don't forget that I went to SGU. Okay. And one of the most wonderful exports of Grenada is chocolate. Intr- I had no idea. Yeah. They make wonderful chocolate in Grenada. Wow. Award-winning chocolate. Okay. All, all organic, made in the same way it's been made for hundreds of years. So how much? How many pounds did you gain when you were in Grenada? <laughs> yeah. Quite a few. <laughs> Actually, my my wife is addicted to that chocolate, and I still get it for her. Oh, really? That's most likely what I'm going to get her for Valentine's Day. What makes it unique? Is it a, is it white chocolate, first of all? They have all different types. Okay. Yeah, they have all different... And it just happens their beans are the best. Well, they're, they're just... I think that they prepare it with care. You oh, know? okay. So it's nothing like a Hershey's or, an, sure. you know, like a mm-hmm. something we would eat nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's... You know, organic chocolate prepared in the way that it's always been prepared. Gotcha. So kind of unadulterated. And it's really good. It really is. But why is white chocolate chocolate? So white chocolate also comes from the cocoa bean. Okay. Except they remove the solid part. So it's basically just the fat. Interesting. So because it doesn't contain the solids of the cocoa bean, that's why it's not brown. And that's why a lot of people say it's not really chocolate. Do they not add sugar and fat to it because it is already fat they do add sugar and fat oh, okay, yeah, gotcha. because it wouldn't be sweet gotcha. so they extract the fat and then they add milk and sugar mm. usually mm. and that's what makes white chocolate but actually white chocolate has to bring it around the higher concentration of phenylethylamine oh. which as we said is one of the most potent parts which is responsible for that surge in dopamine and for mm. that addictive quality and kind of the anti-anxiety qualities of chocolate. All right. Message received. All white chocolate this Valentine's Day. White chocolate is legit. <laughs> I like it. So some of the qualities of chocolate that make it so wonderful are, like we just said, stimulants in it, like phenylethylamine, mm-hmm. which leads to the release of dopamine. Mm-hmm. And so that's why chocolate can be associated with a feeling of pleasure. And it also can give it kind of an addictive quality. So it'll increase your motivation to reach for more chocolate. But chocolate also makes you feel relaxed. Exactly. And one of the neurotransmitters involved in that process is serotonin. So the most common medication that we give people for anxiety disorders Mm -hmm. are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So Mm -hmm. basically by increasing serotonin, that's one of the main methods that we as psychiatrists have to treat depressive disorders and anxiety disorders. Mm. And chocolate is known to also contain serotonin and to increase levels of serotonin in the brain. Now there's one resident in this program, Raph. I'm listening. Who may be our chief resident. He will be our chief resident next year. Whose office is next door. Whose office is next door. And this resident, Mm -hmm. while working... If he, if he consumes anything, the only thing he consumes, literally, that I've seen is chocolate. Why mm-hmm. might that be? Does chocolate have any other effects? Does it does it help you maybe in your... Tell us. <laughs> so, apparently, chocolate also increases cerebral blood flow. Exactly. And that can lead to better attention, better, you know, functioning, better processing. And I think that's probably how Dr. Rimowitz became chief resident of this program. That's a good tip. So we should also eat more chocolate when we're on duty. Exactly. I think so. I mean, it sounds like a win-win. Yeah. (laughs) It gives you a a surge of energy, anti-anxiety, anti-depressant effects, Mm -hmm. and more cerebral blood flow. So more concentration. Can't go wrong. Except when you gain 20 pounds and then yeah. you turn into a slug. Yeah, exactly. Well, you well know. everything in moderation. Exactly. <laughs> and there's another study that I want to bring up that mm-hmm. I find really interesting. There's a whole line of research now done with uh, mixing chocolate in your coffee. Mm, so A Dunkachino. Mm-hmm, exactly. I've been I known to imbibe. Yes, they're very good. Me too. They are very oh good. Oh my God. So there's a lot of research showing that coffee decreases mortality. It decreases cardiovascular disease. It decreases a lot of different types of cancer. Mm-hmm. It leads to a healthier weight. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uh, health qualities in, in, with coffee. And mm-hmm. I think we probably should do a whole uh, episode on that. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, caveat is you have to drink it in, in moderation. Everything we usually moderation? recommend no more than like 300 milligrams a day. I think I go over that, but we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. But anyway, the, with, there's a whole line of research showing that if you add uh, chocolate to your coffee, you can get those stimulant effects of the caffeine, but the chocolate will decrease the anxiety or the jitteriness associated with coffee. Interesting. So if you're one of those people that gets really jittery when they drink coffee, I recommend you try adding a little bit of chocolate to your coffee. Very interesting. Yeah, I actually have a, a chocolate powder that I got on Amazon that's sugar-free. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially like baker's chocolate. And I add a little bit to my coffee in the morning and I've noticed that it kind of makes me feel better. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I, I used to work with a neuropsychologist mm-hmm. who suggested... That along with the concerta, along with the methylphenidate for anxiety or for inattentiveness, mm-hmm. they should someone, some pharma company, free idea, big pharma companies, hmm. just put that and put a little bit of clonopin in that pill. Interesting, and right? To get rid of the yeah, this, rid- is, yeah. this is pretty much the same thing. Exactly. So it sounds very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Valentine's Day is not all peaches and cream. Sometimes roses are given on Valentine's Day. Sometimes roses are given at funerals. That's right. And I think that Valentine's Day kind of exacerbates sometimes feelings of loss or bereavement. Why would that be? There's something in psychiatry called the anniversary reaction. Mm. And I'm sure you've seen this because I've seen it a lot, especially in the emergency room, is a patient will come in, they might be suicidal, they're severely depressed, Mm -hmm. and they're not even fully aware why. But if you take a good social history and you, you really get into what's going on, You'll find out that it'll be the anniversary of the passing of a loved one, for sure. example. Yeah. You know, it'll be like the death of their child a couple of years ago is coming up mm-hmm. in a few weeks. Sure. That anniversary effect doesn't just have to do with anniversaries of death. It also explains why on certain holidays, people can tend to, to feel more depressed or or it, it causes, you know, kind of a flare up of that loss that they've had, whether it be from the death of somebody from the end of a relationship in some fashion. Mm-hmm. I think it would be it wouldn't be right of us to as psychiatrists to talk about Valentine's Day and all of the positive things without acknowledging the people that are suffering on Valentine's Day. Sure. Because there's a fair amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. When you suffer a loss, there's something called bereavement. The idea is that there's a certain level of suffering associated with the death of a close loved one mm-hmm. that is, for lack of a better term, normal Yeah, in the sense. You don't want to diagnose somebody with a depressive disorder and start giving them medication and interventions because sure. it's totally appropriate to be depressed mm-hmm. for, to a certain extent when you suffered a great loss. It's even appropriate in certain circumstances to have uh, symptoms that you might even describe as psychotic. Right. So, for example, if a patient came in and told me they were hallucinating mm-hmm. their partner who has passed, but it's been within six months and everything else is within normal limits, I would kind of overlook or at right. least try to take that symptom in the broader context right. and really, tr- really exactly. try to determine if this is normal bereavement or something worse. It's important to be to be sensitive to that. Yeah. But on the same token, it's important to us as professionals to keep an eye on when bereavement crosses over and becomes a mood disorder mm-hmm. and what we would call either complicated bereavement or a major depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the normal symptoms of bereavement. Mm-hmm. Sadness, preoccupation with thoughts of the dead person, mm-hmm. irritability is normal, mm-hmm. insomnia, not being able to sleep, poor concentration, and even to a certain degree, a certain lack of function. Sure. However, bereavement should 
in theory, last a certain period of time after which the pain should lessen mm-hmm. and the person should return back to their normal level of functioning. Doesn't mean that you don't miss the person anymore. It just means that after, you know, and we, we right. draw this kind of arbitrary line around six months. That's right. You are able to, sure, you miss them like hell, but you're able to go to work. You're able to take care of what you need to take care of. But then clinically, it's difficult for us to parse out sometimes what is what you would call normal bereavement and what warrants further clinical attention. Mm. So here's some of the differentiating factors between bereavement and a depressive disorder. Mm. Guilt. Guilt can be normal. Like survivor's guilt can be a normal part of bereavement. Sure. But if a person starts suffering from guilt not associated with just survivor's guilt, they just have these overwhelming feelings of guilt, that could be a sign of major depressive disorder. Mm. Thoughts of death. Mm-hmm. It can be normal to have thoughts that you wish that you were with the other person. Sure. That you might be better off dead. But... If those thoughts become too pervasive or you start to have other thoughts of death that go beyond the scope of just vaguely wishing that you were still with the person. Or if you're preparing. Or exactly. Or if you're giving items away, writing suicide notes, Mm -hmm. something like that, then that's a major red flag that something requires clinical attention. Mm -hmm. Feelings of worthlessness. Mm -hmm. That's a sign of depression that's not necessarily explained by bereavement. Yeah. A big one is psychomotor retardation. Now, what exactly does that mean, Ref, for our, for our non-clinician audience members? I The way that I like to ask this question to patients mm-hmm. is I ask, you know, when you're feeling really sad, does it feel like you're carrying heavy weights? That's or does a great it feel like it. you're walking underwater? Right. And more often than not, if someone is experiencing this, they'll say yes. And if they're not experiencing exactly that, they'll be able to triangulate the feeling and say, yeah, I'm, I'm somewhere in that area. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of hard sometimes to explain it. That's actually a great way to put it. So mm. I think I'm going to steal that. Please, um, $5 per time. Other differentiating factors between bereavement and a mood disorder are the level of functional impairment. Mm-hmm. So some level of functional impairment for some period of time uh, is kind of anticipated, but it's hard to say where you draw the line, but clearly if somebody's not functioning, then they may need a, a medical intervention. Sure. And on the topic of hallucinations, mm-hmm. it's normal to have to hear the voice of the of the lost loved one. Like mm-hmm. a lot of times people will hear them calling their name. It even can be normal to have transient images of them. Sure. To see them sometimes by the bedside or something like that. But if you start to have severe hallucinations that are of a different sort that mm-hmm. don't have anything to do with the lost loved one. Or if any of the hallucinations, whether it's the loved one or not, try to interact with you. Right. Or command you to right. do something. Exactly. Then that's an indication that something that warrants clinical attention is going on. All right, so going along with everything that we've been talking about, another big topic that we uh, that we have to cover is why are breakups more common around Valentine's Day? Are they? They are more common around Valentine's Day. And this has been demonstrated in a large number of social studies of varying degrees of power. So some of these studies are great. Right. A lot of these studies aren't so good. Mm-hmm. There was a very good study done that actually validated study that examined relationship status data via Facebook. Hmm. On a massive level, thousands and thousands of relationships. And they found that around Valentine's Day, you are more likely to have a breakup than any other time in the year. I hope we're not scaring anybody. (laughs) Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. Let's hear it. And if you know the reasons, maybe you can prevent this from happening. That's assuming you want to prevent it from happening. (laughs) Assuming you want. Maybe you don't. Some relationships are toxic. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, go ahead. So one of the reasons why this might happen is in a young relationship, you may have abnormally high or unrealistic expectations Mm. for where the relationship is going. And nothing puts those high expectations in stark relief more than Valentine's Day. Interesting. Because if you're expecting a bed of roses... Or the ring. Or the ring, and you don't get it, 
Mm. You know, obviously you're going to come crashing down and you're going to have to deal with the outcome of that. Right. Another problem is comparisons. Couples draw comparisons right. between them that, and other couples. That's what I was thinking, yeah. In this era of social media, it is extraordinarily easy. For example, on Valentine's Day, when you mm-hmm. go on Instagram, you see a beautiful picture of me and Shannon <laughs> eating at Alta in the city. We're having a great time. And you haven't even done anything for your poor wife. You're trying to make me feel bad. <laughs> she's going to feel She's gonna feel horrible. I'm just letting you know what's going to happen. Okay. Okay? We'll make it a double date. We, let's do it, man. Okay. It's, it's my favorite restaurant. Another thing that happens is, this is more of a psychological term. But uh, it's called magnification. Valentine's Day is a lens that magnifies already existing problems in the relationship. If two people are having trouble with intimacy, Hmm. obviously that's going to come out on Valentine's Day. If two people are having trouble or one or the other person is having trouble displaying emotions... Mm-hmm. That's going to come out on, on Valentine's that's Day a, for sure. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's easy to kind of ignore things that are going wrong in the relationship, but then Valentine's Day kind of brings a focus to it. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And this, you know, this kind of social science research has a foundation in more stringent psychological research. Two researchers, John and Julie Gottman, not sure if they're a couple, but they're a big name in psychology. Mm-hmm. They did uh, a series of famous experiments where they observed interactions in 130 newlyweds during a day at a bed and breakfast. And they saw throughout the day, one or both partners would try to make connections with the other by bidding their loved ones, by bidding for their attention. Mm -hmm. Okay. In some cases, the wife or husband would turn around to kind of reciprocate that attention that the other person is trying to engender from them. Mm -hmm. In other cases, they would not. And on that simple basis alone, they were able to predict with 94% accuracy which couple would be together in six years. Wow. So I think there That's are... That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Wow. I think there are a couple things that we can take Surmise, from this yeah. and things that you can use on Valentine's Day and otherwise mm-hmm. to strengthen your relationship. So the first thing is, first of all, don't turn away your partner. If your partner is trying to get attention from you, mm-hmm. the worst thing you could do is say, you know, I'm busy. Mm-hmm. I can't do that tonight. You have to be there. Right. And maybe to the detriment of other things in your life. Right. But arguably, this is the most important thing in your life. Or maybe if you're not able to do that, if that's mm-hmm. too much work for you, maybe it's a sign for you that the relationship's not right for you. Exactly. Exactly. Along those lines, helping your partner, offering to help them in things that maybe are not even shared struggles. Mm-hmm. So for example, Shannon, my fiance, she gets overwhelmed with grading. She's a teacher. Oh, Teachers work their butts off. Yeah. And if I even offer, and she usually won't let me, but if I even offer, hey, give me one of those lab reports. Let me let me take a crack at that. Just offering in and of itself could be a huge, I mean, I see it in her face. It's a huge game changer. That's awesome. What subject does she teach? She teaches uh, science to sixth graders. She okay. loves it. So I'm hoping that she does not allow you to ever grade the lab reports. <laughs> I do, but then she, she checks my work. <laughs> she grades your grade? She grades my grade. Oh, man. Another thing that you can do, and this goes obviously beyond Valentine's Day, you have to have more consistent experiences. You have to have date night. You have to make time for things like that. If you're not making time for that on a regular basis, no matter how crazy you go on Valentine's Day, no matter how much money you spend, you're not going to make up for that lack of connection that's building up over time. That's an excellent point. And then another thing that psychologists recommend to do is to try new experiences that you might be less excited about, but that your partner is interested in. And that's a big thing that people can do going forward, putting your interests on the back burner and maybe exploring a hobby or something with your your partner that maybe you've been putting off but they're into. And then later it's going to come back to you. Later they're going to say, hey, what's that video game you're playing? Yeah. <laughs> In my case. Right. That's a you great know. idea. So people who are looking for last minute ideas for Valentine's Day. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about loss on Valentine's Day, whether it be due to the death of a loved one or end of a relationship. I think what's important to know is that this anniversary reaction 
causes a spike or a rekindling of that loss. So generally over time, the symptoms from from a loss tend to weaken. You know, they say time heals all wounds. Mm -hmm. And that's very true. But whenever there's an anniversary, whether it be an actual anniversary or a holiday that reminds you of the loss, it tends to cause a spike in that loss again. Mm -hmm. The question is, what advice do we have for people who are suffering from a loss on Valentine's Day? And it's a difficult question. Here's what I would suggest. One is to be mindful of the anniversary reaction. A lot of people don't realize. Some people do. Some people are very aware of it. Mm -hmm. But other people tend to have these shifts in their mood that they don't recognize is due to an anniversary. There's, sure. there's actually a lot of research down that line. Another thing you might consider is commemorating the person that you lost. Mm -hmm. It's totally okay to suffer on Valentine's Day mm -hmm. if it helps you find peace. Sure. And a final tip that I read online, and I'm going to steal because I like the way they said it, was cope ugly. <laughs> and the idea was just do whatever you have to do within reason mm -hmm. to get through the day. You know, to get through that loss. Sure. There's no textbook. There's no right way to get through suffering. It's your it's your loss. It's your life. And it's your right to deal with it however you see fit. And I want to I throw one extra one sure. in there. Uh, this is from my experience working with a lot of vets who suffer with the holidays as well as the anniversary of their trauma. If they exactly. suffer from PTSD. One of the things that they tell me is don't isolate. When you see that anniversary coming, mm. a lot of them have the urge to withdraw, right. stay away from family, spend more time with themselves and kind of, you know, wallow in their sadness. Right. And I think it's so important to avoid that urge. Spend time with your family. Mm -hmm. Let them know, I'm going through a tough time. Spend time with friends just so that you're not isolating, you're not by yourself because that's where things can get dangerous. Okay, James. So we're getting near the end now. Oh so my let's, God. Let's talk about our top five tips for Valentine's Day. Okay. So here's my first tip. White chocolate is chocolate too. Very controversial opinion, but I am in agreement with you now that I know the science behind it. My first tip would be that Valentine's Day lasts all year long. No amount of money, no amount of time or care that you spend on your loved one on Valentine's Day is going to make up for a year of you not being there emotionally. My next tip, add some chocolate to your coffee in the morning. Mm, my next tip, I think, would be to try new things, okay? If your partner's interested in something and you're not so much, take the leap. Maybe you'll like it. Who knows? And tip number five for Valentine's Day is if you're dealing with loss, don't isolate. Don't be afraid to tell somebody, to reach out to a family member, to a friend, and to celebrate the holiday with them, even if it's sad. Couldn't agree more. All right, so that's going to do it for today's episode, James. All right, and... We like to sign off, as always, by reminding you that you do not need to suffer alone. And if anything you've listened to today has struck a nerve or if you've been suffering for a long time, we really encourage you to reach out to mm -hmm. a mental health provider, a psychiatrist, a therapist, and talk it out. If you've never tried it before, can't hurt giving it a try. And, uh, and yeah, we want to make sure that there are as many people enjoying Valentine's Day this year as possible. That's right. So, until the next time, peace. Adios.